Coming up next, Die Fiend 80 Gore. Hey everybody, welcome to the Booking. It's Thanksgiving, we're still stuck on Halloween. <laughs> I just think that when you have a masterful sequence of Halloween puns like Die Fiend 80 Gore, how can you not, Jake? You have to have more self-control than I do, my I friend. I think it's arguable that, that it it's, doesn't work as well as you imagine it does. I mean, sure, if you want an argument to be defeated <laughs> easily then you can argue that. I mean, anything's arguable. Just read 1984, see what some of those guys were arguing. Yeah. Yeah. Or should I say, what was it again? Die Fiend 80 Gore. Yeah. I think yeah. you should say that. Die Fiend 8 Bleed Gore. That's getting a little bit more, that's getting a little further away. From anything useful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, we are reading Die Fiend 8 Bleed Gore by Gord, uh, Gord Gore Hell, and we're having a great time this doing it. This is your own form of newspeak, where everything has to be Halloween pun related. Oh, man, if only I was in charge of a fascist yeah. Halloween dictatorship. <laughs> fascist Halloween dictatorship. Nathan, oh, Nathan the Pumpkin King. That would be the life. That, that would be the knife. Yeah. Nathan, Nathan the Pumpkin King. Yeah, if only I was old. Bat Cold Killer Bee. Wait, who's Bat Cold Killer Bee? No, that would be the knife, you said. I was trying to give the other things. Oh, too. that would be the life. Yeah, Bolt. Bat Cold. Bat Cold. Bat Cold. Da 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 Bat Cold. Bat Cold. Bat Cold. Bat Cold Bleed. Bat Cold. What would they be? Fiend. Bat Cold. Bat cold bleed fiend life? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> ah, yes. Bat cold bleed fiend life. <laughs> bat cold bleed fiend life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, man. It's indecipherable. What, the puns? Anything that has been said from the start of <laughs> this episode to now. Bleed. Completely indecipherable. Okay, well. I don't even know what book we're talking about. Let me die. Well, who wrote it? <laughs> die hard. Sigh. Die hard. I know that reference. Me and Captain America. Let me decipher it. Ooh. <laughs> Scary. It's like the clown. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> hey, folks, we're talking about 1984. Last time, we were going through some of the ideas from the novel, like historical negationism, negationism, propaganda, newspeak, hate week, thought police, and saying, yeah, no, Orwell kind of nailed it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You wouldn't have thought it. It took a... A long time, but yeah, here we are. I think one of the parts that rang the most true to me, uh, not the most politically correct thing to say, but what is, if you're agreeing with Orwell, he has this little section about how women make the best members of the party because they're mm -hmm. super loyal and obedient to the party and kind of psycho for it, especially young women. Yep. And I was like, I think maybe that describes some of the world that I live in today. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I to myself. 
Is that what you thought, Nathan? Yeah. Kill the heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Send him to room 101. Yeah. Sorry, folks. I kind of think we need to. You're going to send me to room 101? Yeah. Maybe even room 100. What's in room 100? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> Why is it called 100? Nathan, don't question the system. Nathan, deep down, you know. You've always known. You've always known it was room 100, and you've known why. Yep. All right, on a level of <laughs> one to, you're going to torture me to death with rats, uh-huh. evaluate this statement. I think that women are- Death by rats. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> women no. are death by rats. There's a t-shirt. <laughs> women or death by rats. Yeah. That's if I had to choose, choose between women or death by rats? I would also choose women. Yeah. If I had to choose to get rid of one, women. <laughs> <laughs> this is a glorious time we are having. Oh, man. No, I, like- I pity the person that actually thought they were going to get into this podcast through 1984. <laughs> there is one book that we've just said, we don't care. <laughs> we're treating this a bit like- uh, We don't care if this is your introduction. <laughs> we're not treating this with the same respect that we treated Marilyn Robinson. <laughs> Oh, a trap door open. <laughs> oh, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I take no, it back. Fix it, fix it. Yeah, we got it fixed. It's fine. Yeah. Oh. Pretty sure he's dead. Nathan has been, since been sitting on the opposite side of the table. Yeah, I just don't. There, there is a trap door that periodically <laughs> just opens, but we just watch it. <laughs> okay. Close it back up. Nobody is dumb enough to actually sit over top of it anymore. Yeah, Nathan learned his lesson. Man, that's this is this stuff is all deep cuts. We have not yet said a single sentence that <laughs> anyone can understand outside of Like um, I said, indecipherable. Our super friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jake is right. Deep cuts. Ooh. And we don't scare. Um <laughs> <laughs> I will say that particular character uh appears on another podcast. Yeah. You can find him. Somewhere yeah. under uh, not that name, I don't think, but it's definitely that character. It's canon, folks. Yeah, um, you can find him probably really already released by now. I think. Well, definitely already released by now. But you can also find him. He's been there before. He's been there before. He's been there a few times. Yeah. Should we say the podcast? What's the sound of saying? Yeah. So, yeah I mean, <laughs> what, what else would it be? Well, he's making. An then appearance. comes what? <laughs> what he's making? The world we made. What he's making an appearance. He's a couple appearances. Well, I know he made one. Yeah. Uh, he he he's, he he. Uh, I guess uh, maybe listen to the Halloween episodes that come out for Sound of Sanity. You might okay. you might hear an old friend there. Oh. Uh, does he say Bradley? He does not say Bradley. Okay. Um, and, and I'm not saying who old, what old friend it is. So Jake, there may actually. be several old friends actually. Ooh, yeah. scary old friends. Um, all right. They're not from the beginning. Only one from the beginning. Let's talk about. 1980 gore. Let's do it. Die Fiend 8. Did we come up with something for 8? Die Fiend. No, you came up with something for T. Die Fiend Crate, like sometimes crates hold monster. So Die Fiend Crate. Great. Great. Like the grate on the street where it hides behind. Yeah, exactly. Die Fiend Great. (laughs) (laughs) Bleed. Gore. Uh, or if you want to throw a Thanksgiving reference in there. I don't. Die Fiend <laughs> Gravy. Die cool. Fiend Gravy. Four. <laughs> pie Fiend oh, yeah. Gravy Four. Yeah, Pie Fiend Gravy Four. There. That All right, let's do this. Sense. Let's take, let's oh make it into goodness. a full Thanksgiving oh pun. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> pie 
You can be a pie fiend. Pie fiend. Yeah, you're a pie fiend. Or pie steam. Pie steam. Sure. Pie steam gravy. Five pipes, pie steam <laughs> gravy. <laughs> <laughs> gravy pour. Yeah. Pie, <laughs> pie steam gravy pour. <laughs> You do like ice cream gravy. Stuffing, cranberry sauce, turkey. Ice cream gravy for. Ice cream, (laughs) ice cream gravy for. (laughs) We've got an ice cream gravy for. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to to this podcast? Turn it back to gravy pour. It's an ice cream gravy pour. It's an ice cream gravy pour? You want to come to the ice cream gravy pour? (laughs) (laughs) You've never been to an ice cream gravy pour? Sounds delicious. <laughs> uh, now I want to talk about a song from... Guys, we're acclimating. We should tell people we are acclimating to a completely new way of doing the bookening. <laughs> yeah, now we're doing this crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We just lost all we, our we, listeners. We have that you're acclimated to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, the the musical Carousel, have you guys ever had the pleasure of seeing? No. It has this big song in the middle where they've just had a clam bake, and so they sing this song. I will now quote from the lyrics. Oh, this was a real nice clam bake. We're mighty glad we came. The vittles we eat were good, you bet. The company was the same. Our hearts are warm, our just bellies are full, and we are feeling prime. This was a real nice clam bake. And we had a real good time. I don't know if those are, that's the actual music, but those are the lyrics. Why are you reading this to us? <laughs> I just think it's funny. That must be the song of all songs ever written that is the most inapplicable to anything else yeah. ever. <laughs> like, it only works in that one context. It cannot be recontextualized. There's no other place to use this clam bake song besides in a movie that features clam a bakes. clam bake. That's true. And I have no idea what made me think of that. What is a clam bake? Well, Brandon, <laughs> there's a thing that you do at a clam bake. You bake clams? No. Oh. You you eat clams that other people have baked. baked. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> Quality stuff. Quality stuff. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, solid gold. Boy, 1984. Yep. I'm not going to well, I'm not going to say the Thanksgiving pun or the Halloween fun because we have got to get this train on the track. So. <sighs> we had it on the track. What were we talking about? I don't think we've ever been on the track because all we've been talking about are <laughs> Halloween puns. <laughs> Didn't we say something? Oh, yeah. I, I said the, the thing about women make oh, yeah. good party members. Yeah. yeah. So I, we started out with a bit of sexism. Then we moved on to some <laughs> Halloween puns. Some anarchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We backed up our sexism with some <laughs> nonsensical crap. Listen, folks. <laughs> women. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Yeah, no, women are great. But I think because women are designed by God to be helpmates, they are loyalists, and they throw themselves into a cause, generally speaking. Not that there aren't exceptions. But you take that, and you combine that with Uber party loyalty, it's like Chesterton says about women in the workplace. He has this extended thing where he's like, women are so much better at being workers in the workplace. They will take these menial jobs and they will do them zealously. And that's why they should never be in the workplace. I think Orwell has a nice line on that in talking about the women of the party. 
yeah. they are committed to it in a way that I don't know. I guess all I was really trying to say with that is it rang true to what we see in political on the campus of Indiana University. Yes, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. A recorder's office is where I have to work. Mm-hmm. Yep, <clears throat> they're always ran by women, and they make they can make life very interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like we, we as gentlemen, we all understand we're not supposed to take these rules that seriously. We obey them, whatever. It's fine, but at the end of the day, it's a job. Yep, women don't have that innate understanding no they, they take everything it's seriously. all of life it's all of life yeah um, and which is great when you're a homemaker right yeah it's wonderful it's because it is all of life yeah and it's life or death it's like mm-hmm. if i don't do this the child will die but you can't bring that same zealotry to the workplace actually you have to have some distance and some understanding and a little bit of ironic detachment yeah which women generally speaking lack which is why they make the ability to shut off the ability to shut off the ability to leave it behind the ability to hold yourself at a distance from it yeah and that's why they make great party members actually of any of these kind of yeah because it becomes all of life mm-hmm. so yeah there you go there's your sexism i think is there anything else you guys want to say about right, let me ask this question because i want to actually talk about the novel which we've managed not to do that much over these past three episodes but in terms of orwell's prophecy and his understanding of the world and all that do you think there's anything that he got fundamentally wrong i'm not talking about televisions telescreens but in his philosophy yeah absolutely okay this is going to be a little hard to parse so the idea that if we if we take away all pleasure then everything is channeled towards power Mm -hmm. there is something fundamentally true about that that sexual energy will inevitably translate as aggression and power struggles but that's not the way that you keep a society subdued i think it's more true on a personal level than it is on a societal exactly exactly so uh where orwell then makes sex into the act of rebellion that can undo everything Mm -hmm. and abstinence in the ladies anti-sex league Mm -hmm. As a way to keep people in check. That's completely bogus. And that's why Huxley was right. Mm-hmm. So there's one. I yeah. I don't, I don't know how to. Except he has the weird stuff with the pornography. That that's make... for the proles. Yeah, it's for the proles. So they keep the proles under control by giving them. I think I, I agree 100% with you, Jake. I think if I was arguing, if I was pushing back, I'd say. And I don't, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert on Stalinist Russia, but, or, or China or any of these places, but, or Nazi Germany, but don't some of these regimes actually, aren't they repressive? Well, China was what I was thinking of sexually. later, especially when I think, I think it was in the sort of all running together in my mind now, I think it was a, a, an excerpt from Goldstein, maybe. Mm-hmm. Certainly China has, I guess all I want to say is it's tricky. Well, I think any fascist or totalitarian society does find a way to render sex sterile and fruitless. Yeah, no question which, about which Orwell that. understood something of that, and that's China. You know, from what I know of Stalinist Russia, I think it went through periods. I think as the communists were coming to power, if I remember correctly, and I'm not an expert, folks, so don't give us one star. But I think, just like with fascist Germany, there was a lot of sexual debauchery during early stage communism. And then they kind of as things became more oppressive, clamped down on it and had these weird kind of support the party by being a family man things. I mean, that was Hitler, the Hitler youth, the ideal German woman, 
But then there's two things that go against kind of the Orwell version of it. Number one, there was always a lot of hypocrisy with that because it turns out people have sexually sexual energies that do need channeled and there's nothing you can really do about that. You have to channel it somehow. You can't just, mm-hmm. you can't just turn it off and you can't just channel it into power. Like it has to, or, or any other thing, it has to be <clears throat> sex will out eventually. And number two, I think that they, in, in a lot of those cases, relaxed. I mean, like I think yeah. Stalinist well, Russia re- relaxed again, like, oh, actually we need to let people do what they want if we're going <laughs> to, they're not going to take us seriously and let us stay in power if we tell them they can't have sex, basically, you know, like. Inevitably, what you get are these rings of hypocrisy. Orwell might say, have you heard of the Holy Roman Empire? Right. And of course, the proles, they were allowed to marry and whatever, but to be in the inner circles, the higher up in the inner circles you went, you had to be celibate, mm-hmm. to be in the priesthood, enjoy these upper levels of power, and then that then led to rings of debauched hypocrisy. Right. Right. Which was also, again, hinted at in Orwell when... Julia's like, yeah, I've had, I've done this hundreds of times with hundreds of people and yeah, it, and yeah, party members and. And also the fact that she proudly wears the sash and is, you yeah. know, anybody that doesn't know what Julia is doing behind closed doors would think she's the most sterile and sexist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I don't know. I just thought it was worth talking about. Yeah, no, I like, think you're right. Maybe the way to talk about this is that regardless sex and the control of sex or the liberate or the quote unquote liberation of sex is in the importance of it is something that Orwell does understand. Yeah. Where I think maybe I'm not finding a correspondent in history as I rack my brain for this. And again, I'm, I'm not an expert, but you know, big brother just says basically sex is bad. Like we don't want you to have sex. Yeah, and, what we want to do is abolish pleasure. Right. And I think North America, the, you know, the, the, the big brother that we live under right now, we've abolished pleasure. What we have is a vast array of young people who are using each other for ma- mutual masturbation, who are looking at pornography, who are slowly dying well, to their capability for pleasure. But what we don't have is a politician getting up and saying, I don't want you to have pleasure. Because that's, well, well, that's yeah, not going to fly. What we've done is we've evol- uh, abolished virtue, mm-hmm. yeah, which is at the heart of being able to enjoy legitimate pleasures. Once you rob leg- legitimate pleasures of virtue, you degrade them and you turn them into something that can't be fully enjoyed. So mm-hmm. once you remove the moral order and take sex out of the moral order, then it just becomes a debased. Right form of pleasure well and so when you see the anarchy today i think one way of understanding it is a group of sexually frustrated people i mean yeah. Orwell did, well did understand that sexual frustration becomes channeled into violence and aggression into aggression into yeah. displays of power we're not really arguing with that no um, and i think we see that on a daily basis right now with our nation with our nation yeah i mean i think people I don't think it's one-to-one. I don't think it's that simple, but I think it is true that no-fault divorce when you have easy access to abortion, when you have... Ubiquitous ubiquitous pornography. Right. You are actually removing, as Jake was just saying, pleasure from sexuality because what can be enjoyed in such a chaotic and sinful and degraded environment? You add a guilty conscience to it and you take away 
I mean, okay. We're going to, let me just get rated R here for a minute. So get the kids out of the room, hit pause, whatever. Mm -hmm. Sex is intrinsically pleasurable on a physical level. Everybody knows that. It's not a secret. Orgasm is designed by God to be intrinsically pleasurable. That's one small component Mm -hmm. of the pleasure of sex. The real pleasure of sex is the intimacy that you share with somebody that you love, that you have covenanted to walk together with through life for better, for worse. And it's heightened even more when you're, by God's design, giving yourself to the kind of intimacy with one another that can produce the fruit of that love. So all of these things are layers that actually heighten the beauty and the joy of sex. Now you take away children, you take away the covenant of marriage, you take away love and joy and suffering and commitment and leave it down to the bare animal act and then taint it with guilt. Yeah, there's still some pleasure to be had there, but it's such a a shadow. I think for many people, that pleasure dries up too. Yes, it does. I mean, why is there such a big Viagra market right now? Exactly. Eventually, when you remove all the other components, the last component, orgasm, actually does go away. Right. I mean, it's erectile dysfunction. Again, this is the R-rated segment, I guess, but I thoroughly believe that you don't get the animal pleasure without the spiritual pleasure, at least not for long. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason why so many men struggle with impotence and erectile dysfunction and and it is all bound up together. And, you know, so much of the cure of that is simply discovering healthy, God-honoring sexuality in all of its fullness mm-hmm. and working toward that. And I, I'm not trying to, like, put pressure on you to have some magical experience every time you have sex with your husband or wife. I'm just saying there's more to it. And it's that's the thing that, People won't understand growing up in a in a world where no value is placed, no emphasis is placed on on that. And so in a broad sense, Orwell has it right, because to control the people, you do control the sexuality. And you do if you if you want to make people aggressive and make them loyalists to some kind of party line, you do actually render them sterile and fruitless. And that's is largely what you see across fascist and totalitarian yeah, I guess there are a couple states. of ways that people have basically tried to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, some totalitarian states have, uh, we're talking forced sterilizations. And that was India under... Um, it's been in, uh, it's been in America Gandhi. too. Yeah. It's been all over the place. Forced yeah. sterilizations, forced uh, childlessness, you know, even, you know, the one-child policy in China actually simply brain... By, by opening up by preaching things like what Orwell preached, that sexual debauchery is revolution. Mm-hmm. It's defying the man, opening people up to ruining sex for themselves mm-hmm. and simply desiring for themselves to sterilize themselves, literally, surgically, chemically, or through abortion. And then the breakdown of the of the family and the covenant union of man and wife. Yeah. I mean, we literally have people that have been allowed to go so insane in our society sexually that they want to have their genitals intentionally mutilated. And if you, yeah. can't, if you can't see a bigger... And, and they want to mutilate the genitals of their children. Yeah. And there is a broader to, to that. In order to virtue signal their yeah. progressive ideology. 
It's monstrously evil. And for all of the preaching of the progressives of being on the side of right side of history, history will not look kindly. Uh, history's going to tear us apart. And it, if history doesn't tear us apart by the time it's all said and done, there's going to be a judgment. Mm-hmm. And history will tear us apart. God will tear us apart. Yeah. All that being said, a Brave New World actually still has it more right than Orwell does because it actually sees and, and predicts how this sort of thing will ended up working certainly in 20th century America and 21st yeah. century America better than just the straight up nasty totalitarian. Yeah, I mean, it even allows non-Soviet Europe. Yeah. They encourage it with children in Brave New World. I remember Mm -hmm. that as one of the pretty horrifying sections, this one. Like they're encouraging childhood sexuality. Yeah, exactly. They have have the little boys and girls that are actually taught to be sexual with each other. To be fairly accurate for today. Oh, and we have people in our community at our library, you know, having trans people in their Drag queens in their drag queen outfits come in and yeah. tell the kid like what else is that? Well, and, and yeah, it pushes for sex education to start in kindergarten. Hashtag cuties. I mean, yeah, cuties. What the ne- the Netflix thing? Cuties. I don't know about this. Are you serious? Oh, I do know about this. Yes. Yeah, it's awful. Yes. Yes. Yeah, took you a second. Or even lowering of cons- uh, age of consent. Things that we see happening already in California, which mm-hmm. is yeah. are things that we've talked about here and in other places <clears throat> for years as being the next frontier. When a burger fell hit, the, one of the first things that we said was age of consent is next. And I think a burger fell was what, 2017? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. You already have age of consent being attacked and- You didn't think it was gonna be this quick, but no. the cascade- Pedophilia yeah. is once now the, Once the ball a, starts, once the snowball starts, Pedophilia is diagnosed as a psychological disorder, or at least something that you should understand on the same level as a as homosexuality. As a, I mean, we have articles being well, published in mainstream journals, not not just in, like in, academic journals, but popular journals saying things like pedophilic feelings are okay as long as you don't yes, break the law. Yeah. Don't don't actually break the law. Yes, but, exactly. Which you know. is why I mean, yeah, re- and then people are arguing as, for chi- childhood consent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's awful. Yeah. Well, that's probably a pretty good segue into talking about the novel as a novel, because the novel is going to make some interesting arguments that Jake was just alluding to as to how we free ourselves from, actually, maybe that's still just talking about the novel's philosophy, but <clears throat> I don't know. I will try and attack both as we finish up this episode. What did you guys think about 1984 as a book that you read? I am glad it exists. I am incredibly impressed with you know, we, we haven't actually even talked about Baggage. baggage. Had, had you read this book before? No, or? never read it. The only things that ever I've ever read by Orwell have been like his essay on writing. Right. Animal, animal no Farm? Animal Farm? I've not read An- Animal Farm, no. Oh, wow. Even in, in terms of dystopian fiction, Brave New World is the only thing I had read prior to the bookening. We read Fahrenheit 451 together. Never Let Me Go. And then Never Let Me Go. That hideous strength I had read, if you, Brandon brought it up yeah. in, in context, is something as, as that, far counts. As that counts. Then sure. So insofar as it counts, it's something I had read. But yeah, this is, this is my first time reading the book. Um, Here, uh, put a pin in your thoughts for just a second and let me get everybody's baggage and then we'll come back and 
Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I had read Animal Farm. I thought uh, I was still giving my baggage. Oh, man. sorry. I, I'm sorry. I thought you were about to give your analysis. Continue <laughs> with your baggage, sir. But I don't know what I was going to say now. No, You're Jake, I'm feelings. sorry. As far as so bad. Those were the words you had said. As far oh, that's as so good. What? That's so helpful. As far as, as, far as, as, far as Nathan as, is the perfect <laughs> podcast host as, who never makes any mistakes. I think you know, you're good. a great podcast host. The mis- mistakes you make are the mistakes I would choose to live with over any other podcast host in all of existence. Oh, Thank wow. You, oh, man. I would not be as happy if you were Joe Rogan. Drink bleach, Joe Rogan. <laughs> That's basically what I was saying, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Drink it fast, Joe Rogan. Please don't drink. (laughs) Inject it in your veins, though. Yeah, no. Yeah, you can imbibe it in other ways. Just don't (laughs) Do not drink bleach. Uh, Sorry, you were giving your baggage, Jake, as far as... No, I don't remember. It's okay. Maybe we should just go to Brandon. Uh, All I was going to say is... I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. What What even was I saying before that? I mean, were other dystopian things maybe you've engaged with, or you said you'd read Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, or... It's gone. It's gone. Oh, maybe it'll come back. Okay. Just interrupt Brandon. Brandon. Yeah. Bearing in mind that Jake might interrupt you at any moment. My baggage is short. I've read 1984. I read his essay on writing. I've always had the impression because of people who liked 1984 that it was going to be like Ayn Rand and therefore I wouldn't like it. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's my baggage. Okay. I'll keep my baggage short as well. I have read this novel several times. I don't know that I've ever really enjoyed it all that much, but it's just... For, for whatever reason, whether it was in classes or for various reasons. I think I read it in high school, didn't really care about it, and then challenged myself to read it again many years later. Like, just you should be conversant in this, Nathan. I have read Animal Farm, although it's been since junior high, probably. I'm familiar with some of his essays and famous quotes and things like that. I think I tend to enjoy dystopian literature, maybe, but I was pretty tired of it in the late 90s, early 2000s, around the time that Christian Bale's masterwork of cinema, Equilibrium, came out, where he does Gun Kata. You guys remember this awesome movie? No. Nope. No, okay. <laughs> You're welcome, three three <laughs> listeners that remember that, where emotions are outlawed, and so Christian Bale has to do his Gun Kata. I get very tired of the Hollywood version of this. Like, V for Vendetta, I think, is a really stupid movie. Never seen it. Anytime I see one of those movies that have, like, big talking faces and kind of, you know, dystopian chic, sort of the look of- like the Cardassian Empire the Kardashian Deep Empire. Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, or the Kardashians and um, what are they called? Bringing up the Kardashians. What's that thing <laughs> yeah, called? Yeah, that is a dystopian empire <laughs> That too, is a yeah. dystopian. Kim and <laughs> Keeping Chloe, up with- Keeping yeah. up with, yeah, bringing up, bringing <laughs> up the Kardashians. Baby Kardashians, you've never seen the spinoff. So, you know, anytime I see a movie that has like a giant face that's talking to a- decayed futuristic cityscape i'm like oh brother whether it's big brother oh big brother oh big, I say, brother. Yeah. Oh, big brother <laughs> i'm just kind of like oh boy haven't we seen this like can you guys ima- even if you're going to imagine a dystopia can you imagine it looking a little different from ridley scott's apple commercial i mean i like ridley scott's apple commercial from 1984 as much as the next guy but does every cinematic dystopia have to look the same way um, have you ever seen moonwalker uh, michael jackson yeah it's been a long time, and I don't know if I've seen it through, but... It's just in that same... Yeah, it's like, yeah. It feels like every time I see the 1984 Apple commercial, I feel like it's a scene in Moonwalker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. 
so I, what am I trying to say? Let me tie these threads together. I have read it several times. I guess I kind of like <laughs> it. I tend to prefer this stuff in literary form. The cinematic versions always seem a little trite to me. Not that you couldn't name several things that I love, like the original Matrix that I suppose you could say are dystopian. But when it has that particular aesthetic that George, that, that we think of as Orwellian, it tends, I tend to just be like, come on guys, this is boring. I don't necessarily love all the cliches that came out of the aesthetic cliches that came out of 1984. As to my feelings on the novel, I will say them as the appropriate time comes. And the appropriate time has now come for Jake to take the pen out of his thoughts and to continue giving them to us starting now. About what? Uh, 1984. (laughs) You said something that made me think, oh, we haven't done baggage yet. What are your thoughts on the novel? Yeah, I had asked your thoughts on the novel. I'm impressed by it. I'm impressed by how many handles... Orwell has given us to understand the time we live in, Mm -hmm. how many handles Orwell has given us to understand the future. I'm impressed by how thorough an understanding of Marxism he has, just philosophically. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be impressed by, and I'm impressed by it all. I, I don't think he, I don't think it as a novel is the greatest novel I've ever read. I think it's far from being a great novel in and of itself. But if you take the combination of insight and foresight and even pair it with a, how do I get this in the hand? How how do I communicate this to the masses? Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to write a work of fiction that helps people wrap their heads around all this Mm -hmm. stuff and have some handles to work with. When you pull all that together and then have it be successful, as successful on all those fronts as 1984 is, I'm willing to stand behind it and say it's a work of genius and whatever its faults. And the world's richer for having it. And I'm glad that it exists. Yeah, I think I'm basically on the same page. I mean, it's like any message novel. If you're looking for a novel, then I'm not, you know, who wants to read Uncle Tom's Cabin? Right. For a novel. Exactly. For, for the characters, for the richness of the prose. As a thing, you know, as a, as a, as a savvy bit of messaging and as a cultural, cultural touchstone and as a work of political philosophy. I mean, there's all kinds of places when, where When you're able to pull all those together in a way that works on a fundamental level mm-hmm. and is able to have a, a popular impact that is, to me... It's just incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, how many times have we read, even from so-called geniuses like Dostoevsky, there's so much hack. There are mm-hmm. so many hack ways of, I have a political or philosophical ideology. I'm going to package it in a novel, and it's just garbage. Right. Right? Is that, is that your take on Dostoevsky there? Yes. Oh, wow. Have you started Brothers K? No. <laughs> Maybe that'll change. I hope it changes. Yeah, about uh, the time you get to the, what is it? The under, not under. Grand, Grand Inquisitor. Inquisitor. Grand Inquisitor. I've read the Grand Inquisitor oh, several times. Yeah, of course have you, you have. Read the Brothers K yet? I have read the Brothers K and I've certainly read the Brothers uh, Inquisitor. Um, Look. Where'd you land At it? the end of the day. It's okay. Yeah. It's his best. Yeah. Thought police, thought crime, mm-hmm. big brother, indelibly helpful handles in a package that I can hand to a high school student. Yep. I, that that's that's amazing well and for a man who's so keenly aware of how language shapes thought 
he has successfully shaped thought until the end of time. Like we all are scared of big brother and maybe big brother will win anyway, but we'll all always be scared of it. Big brother will tell us to be afraid of big brother. Yeah. The only way that big brother wins is by convincing us that the other thing is is big big brother. Exactly. One thing it, but what it might've been able to get away with is just being big brother. If not for George Orwell, at least we forced it to be not brother. Exactly. These mental which, handles. Which is, which is to say he put a fundamental chink in the armor. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. He, 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 opened up a, he opened up a hole. That's he opened up a window. So long as this book exists and can be read, that's, there's a chink. Okay. You just convinced me. That's, that's the most useful way I've thought of it. Is that it, it prevents this from ever existing in an unironic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. And so long as it has to exist in an ironic way. So therefore, it's useful. And it is well-written. And it is, even if I don't like the characters and it doesn't do everything that I usually want in a story, doesn't mean that its value isn't there and doesn't mean that it shouldn't be read. Well, even some of the stuff we were criticizing about the sex, it's like maybe one of the reasons regimes haven't been able to actually get away with that over the 20, you know, over the, however many, how many years has it been now? Well, almost 100 years since he wrote the book. Is because uh, he told us, like, the bad guys want to shut off your sexuality. Don't let them do it. So they well, have to do it another a, way. You know, but he, yeah. By proliferating your sexuality. Right. So then you come down, you know, in the end, you almost feel, you, you feel the despair of Winston, mm-hmm. right? You know, one of the things, intentional, unintentional, almost certainly unintentional, that... 1984 inevitably drives you to is God. Okay, Winston's hopeless. What can beat Big Brother? George Orwell seems pretty hopeless based on the evidence of this album. Yeah, Yeah, but God, Mm -hmm. right? Like the king of heaven laughs at the designs of men. Mm -hmm. If you can read 1984 with that in the back of your mind, there's a lot to, to learn. There's a lot to be challenged on and then there's a lot to say you know what all the schemes of men amount to nothing Mm -hmm. so you can do all that though without scrambling up the ideas of a a great parable and a great novel and this isn't a great novel yeah no uh, it's not a great novel in fact it's in some ways it's a it's a, it's a good bit of world building. It's all, it does all kinds of things. I think that's where my frustration Oh my goodness. Was. When we get to the places where we have to just sit for- Read stupid gold scenes. Gold scene. Yeah. Oh yeah. my and that's goodness. That's where my frustration with it was, is it's not a novel. It doesn't mm-hmm. work as a novel. But working as a good fable, because there is usefulness in stories that expose something that otherwise we would not have wanted to mm-hmm. face. You can write all the essays you want about the evils of socialism, but having people actually have to experience it in a story like this yeah, is very different. And I see the value of that. So I think you guys, look at that. You guys just convinced me that I should like this more than I did. Now let's talk about Ready Player One. No, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Ernest Klein and Tolstoy, terrible people. Hey, uh, is that like coming out in November or something? Ready Player Two is coming out sometime next year. and uh, oh, 2021. And we will very shortly announce our book list. It might just might be on there. All right. Um, <laughs> it better not be. <laughs> Um, I think the table setting is actually pretty good. The first, this book is divided into three parts. I think the first part is good. 
it really gets draggy once he starts his affair with Julia and they're kind of running around and they're reading that stupid pamphlet and stuff like that. It gets pretty preachy. And then the O'Brien stuff, as prescient as it is, as much as he understands this kind of evil and as interesting as that is, that part goes on for a long time. I couldn't believe. He just wants you to sit in that cell and feel just I as crazy as I old Winston. I could not believe how much book was left the minute that he got captured. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I was, I was really dismayed. Yeah. <laughs> so you should have been. Like, what in the world's going to happen? I honestly... Like, like, the only thing that can happen is, from now to the end, we have... I mean, I okay. I, They're going to try and break him. There's two options. He breaks or he doesn't. Yeah, and in the in the meantime, <laughs> Orwell's got a lot, a lot of exposition that he wants to dump on me while in the process of... I did know... That it's inescapable to not know that in the end he loves Big Brother. So yeah, I knew that I most knew the ending. Lines in literature. So I, I knew he was going to break. Well, and I feel like Orwell. So it's just like okay. So I have to endure a whole you know third of this book. Yep. Of just exposition about that's that's just like what I knew I was in for when I hit it. Not because I was so like uh, I was actually. I mean, the, the execution, I anticipated the execution to be much worse than it actually was. Just have everybody turn out to be a bad guy. Well, no, I mean, that had already happened. I'm talking about after that. It's like, Once okay, he's everybody's this, a bad guy, and now he's captured, and now we have a whole other third of this book left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I expected it to be more, because you had already gotten to the point where you'd hit Goldstein, so it just felt like this degradation, and you just sort of imagine, or I just sort of imagined, he started writing a story. Then he like wanted to get really expositional in r- this really dumb trick of Goldstein's book mm-hmm. that we're going to have to read excerpts from. And now we've got another third of the book and it's the final third of the book. Now we've progressed to the point where we're just going to have monologues. He can literally just be sitting in a classroom with his eyes exactly. open, clockwork orange style. And, yeah, and, and I'm going to, exactly, be- that is exactly the kind of thing that I was anticipating is like, he's just going to, yeah, have his eyes pried open and we're going to walk through him. his re-education program and have to sit and read exposition of all the things that he has to listen to or something dumb like that. That's what I expect. So I was sort of pleasantly surprised by how it worked out, but still going into it, it was just like, ugh. Yeah. It's still, it's like, you know, we just didn't need that much. We didn't need as much. Well, and Although I, I, will, I will actually cop to being in maybe... Uh, I know that this says more about me than it does about the book, but I will cop to to getting emotional at points about him and Julia and stuff. I think it's all pretty well done. I I suppose I did too. Like their relationship? You mean in the torture stuff? Yeah, in the torture stuff and him trying to hold on and and then him finally breaking and, you know, the do it to Julia stuff and then the loss of what they had. And yeah. it's a pretty sad and chilling scene at the end when they just run into each other or whatever it is. And yeah. they're like, we both love big brother. You know, yeah. it's a, it's sad. It's a, it's a poignant and chilling ending. I wish that Orwell had that last bit of moral imagination that would allow him to see some kind of good in the universe. And it's not that I don't need Winston to break or it's not that I need Winston not to break, but if there was more, 
suspense in the <laughs> novel if we really had to see the bad guys pull some real tricks like winston sucks from the beginning of this novel he's just an everyman and he's kind of a broken worm of a nebbish of an everyman and it would be nice he's only as good as george orwell george orwell either to be yeah and i think the novel you could argue that this is a bad way to go but i think it's more interesting at least to have somebody who's a little bit of a challenge for these o'brien people you know you want more of a brave new world well how would like, I actually think... Because it is what Brave New World does. Yeah, Brave New World does do that. Brave New World's much more ham-fisted than this, but it's also... I think Brave New World is, is worse than this, yeah. Uh, as a novel? Yeah, as I an in... The, I do. I think that this is better. I think okay. all. I think every conceit I, in Brave I, New I World... I read Brave New World, but in high school, never yeah. read this. I, I, li- I remember liking Brave New World. I, 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 I actually, I kind of like Brave New World. A Brave New World is fun, and it's funny, and... Okay, I remember that about you know Huxley. Has I remember a nice... that it was fun, that it was funny, that it was enticing, that it didn't feel as bad as it looked, and yeah. like some of my peers were like, "This world's not so bad," and I thought, "Yeah, that's the point." Right. I remember thinking those thoughts in high yeah. school. Which is... I don't know what perspective I'll have on it on a reread, but I don't think that I think I did just New, buy I it. think Brave New World is actually pretty good. I, I think it's a I think maybe I'm finding out that I like dystopian literature better than I thought. Well Huxley is a he's not as interested in even as uh Orwell is in writing plausible characters. There's a number of things Huxley just doesn't even try to do that Orwell at least does okay and just in terms of constructing a novel with a plot and with characters and stuff. But Huxley's also really charming and funny and he does draw you into the world i think that, that, that those are the things that lack in this novel i never feel any loyalty to the party which i think is an observation that's worth ma- making maybe not a criticism but but you you let me ask this question can you relate to being gaslighted by somebody that subjects you to torture psychologically emotionally whatever and then turns around and relieves the pressure that he creates and puts his arm around you. And right. Well, you and I both know that's a description of every one of Brandon's context sections. That's what he does. Exactly us, right? right. That's what I was getting at. And you guys love it. Right. Yeah. Right. And then we come away feeling like after Brandon's tortured us, when he comes back and provides some relief from the torture he's created, we- We love him. We love him yeah, for right. that. We love and Big feel Brandon. feel like- yeah. Yeah. You guys I, love me. I love right? Big Brandon. Right now you love me, right? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I stomped on your point a little bit there. Yes. No, but uh, Orwell does what he needs to do in terms of giving us enough distance to judge the society and also there drawing are, us in. You know, maybe not everybody, but some people in can can relate to that sort of Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. gaslighting kind of effect. Yeah. That an abusive tyrannical authority figure can can have absolutely absolutely but i don't know that we as readers are ever supposed to like there's a way to do that where you as a reader relate to it so much that you actually like o'brien or well never really gives us like he, he doesn't turn that corner why would i why would i nathan alberson reading this novel why would i support the party why would i actually just be a party member the only thing that you really get from winston's point of view is because i'm afraid and weak and I don't really want to stand up, but I always kind of have an instinct that it's bad. And I was like, there's a lot of people in this novel that have an instinct that don't have that instinct that actually lack that. Even Julia, she just likes having sex and 
being her own person. She's she's not. She's only a rebel from the waist down. She's only a rebel from the waist down. One of the good lines from the novel, sure. It, it was a good line. It was a good line. And I, what I what I loved about the execution of it was that she laughed. Yeah. And yeah. agreed. Like when he said that, I was like, ooh, oh. And she's like, yeah. And then she laughs and is like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I really felt Winston was like. Going on a limb. Winston was punching below the belt. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. being nasty and he meant it to hurt and it bounced right off of her. And it said everything about her that Winston was saying. Like yeah. I thought that whole moment was a really great moment. Well, I guess we should talk about that a little bit more uh, about the character of Julia and what Orwell's trying to achieve. Do you guys think this novel is presenting sexual free love, freedom? I mean, is this actually a freedom that Orwell believes in or is he just setting our heroes up for a fall or it's interesting if Julia actually like a modern person, like the people that wrote that stupid script for the Fahrenheit 451 Michael Jordan movie, they're just going to make the girl be noble and awesome and part of the resistance. That's actually, that's literally what I think they did. I barely remember that movie, but I'm pretty sure that's what they did. And of course that's what they did. Orwell's not that simplistic. Julia is kind of a, bad person but also winston finds some real freedom or something there maybe i don't know what do you guys think of i mean that's the most that's one of the controversial things certainly in our circles you know it's one of the reasons it doesn't actually get used in christian high schools is because of all the sex sex and sex presented as the one thing you can do to express your individuality get back at the party get some for yourself whatever yeah rebel yeah the one legitimate motive Rebellious expression. Self-expression. Self-expression, yeah. I was surprised. I was wondering, I was wondering if, I was wondering what was going to happen with Julia and Winston. I found it interesting that they ended up being completely committed to one another. Mm -hmm. We don't get the impression that Julia, I mean, she's done this a hundred times and she's never, it's never meant all that much. She just. It becomes something with Winston that it hadn't been before. Yeah, which is where the novel feels like maybe it's. Cheating or yeah, that it's cheating, that it's like almost like incel wish fulfillment. Yeah, it, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, there's this nympho girl that gives her body to other men, but she's gonna give her soul to me. Yeah, even though I'm a shabby I'm, old I'm 35 fat middle aged man, and she's like a, a young hot <laughs> early 20s. Like, obviously, she's gonna really fall for me. Yeah, because <laughs> that's what would happen. <laughs> And I would be insecure about it, but she would just laugh and say, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, dear, you really need to have some, a thought in your head. And she'd say, ah, let's have sex. <laughs> well, okay, fine, if we must. <laughs> Come on, George. <laughs> um, Self-awareness here, buddy. All right, so we're, we're okay. Where do we land on? Where, where did we, where were we starting from? Well, I was just presenting that as, one of the main moral conundrums of the novel, and I wanted to know what you guys think about it. Yeah, and it. I was saying that it's interesting that, yeah. Julia. Y- 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 okay, a couple of things that I thought were interesting and somewhat realistic even. Winston can't get it done mm-hmm. right away until Winston's worked up into good and angry and knows she's done it hundreds of times and starts to see it as this act of aggression and angry rebellion, that it was a, actually an act of, violence against the party Mm -hmm. that he was committing yeah that's uh insightful i think it i think that i think it's insightful Mm -hmm. true to human nature i think that so some of the particulars he 
he understands. And then, you know, even down the line, once he begins to develop a relationship with Julia, it unlocks his ability <coughs> to see the beauty of the old pro mm-hmm. lady who's had a dozen kids and is, you know, you know, older like him and thick and saggy skinned and whatever else. Those those are some of those places that you were talking about. You know, I wish that Orwell had uh, could see more of the beauty. Mm-hmm. There are there are places where he does. Yeah, and it's not just the goldfinch or whatever it was singing, but it was. So I don't know. I don't know where we're going. I forgot what. Well, even what, if how I, we I got think here, but what, what you're pointing out is that even in the places, even if we ultimately want to make the argument that he misses the mark, that he is presenting a wicked view of the world fornication is freedom (laughs) even if we want to argue that that's what orwell ultimately believes he's still writing in his time had enough of a moral sense that there's any number of incidental things that he gets right yeah um yeah that's right because he's got to pull it back to what what doesn't what a modern writer would do is be like all right the modern writer and the modern adaptation would be Julia is the liberator mm-hmm. and she's going to go around and free the men absolutely by sleeping with all of them mm-hmm. and awakening them yeah sexually and it's going to be a free love movement that undoes big brother and you know Winston's going to get awoken and Winston is going to try to seduce pe- and she's going to go around and she's going to use your sexuality to free right all of these that, that's that's the direction it would go instead Orwell pulls them together into this monogamous relationship Mm-hmm. A committed relationship, and one that has some of the attendant dif- difficulties—sexual, emotional, and otherwise—that would yeah, actually. Yeah, uh, it's it's you know that you get that <sighs> moment late into the, I think maybe the last time that they're together when he finally gets fully naked in front of her, mm-hmm. like even yeah that plays that reads yeah it pl- yeah so he can't go all the way into free love, but. Does he want to? I guess that's the that's the question. That's your question. Is, is this novel actually ultimately presenting fornication as freedom, even if it gets shut down at the end? And that's sad. Yeah, I think I think it is. I think that it's at least positing it as a possible way of freedom. I don't yes. think it's looking down on what they're doing. If that's if that's the question, is there a moral? Orwell's not just setting them up for a fall. He's saying no. I don't think they tried just, their best, and I don't think it's just a narrative device. I think that you're supposed to be sad that the joy that he gets in book two isn't able to last for him that that really is the way to human pleasure joy freedom and you're not seeing the joy that he gets in stage two as the or in book two as the inevitable precursor to the horror of no i think that what he gets in book two is what could what should be had the state not been tricking him like the state was fishing to see would he fall for these things that they're against Mm -hmm. so book two is like the testing ground to show him everything that he could have where the state not really that powerful but uh then they take it away from him right you have o'brien the joy of rebellion you have the other guy what's his name the old man oh mr chamberlain or whatever (laughs) yeah who turns out to be a thought police as Mm -hmm. well so who gives him the little paperweight that represents everything Mm -hmm. and the beauty of the past and then his relationship with her the love that he has and the sense of beauty of all, all that happens there yeah, and they all sort of actually represent three ministries, right? Ministry of love, ministry of truth, ministry of war. War. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. hmm. yeah. It's there as an illusion, but I think the illusion is on, only works because it's actually what Orwell thinks is good. 
Right. If you think of it just structurally on that level of war, truth, and love, or mm-hmm. violence, truth, and love, it really does make sense of the whole novel. It is important that you see that the joy of rebellion, the joy of love slash sex, which is a place where Orwell gets muddled, mm-hmm. and the joy of truth. He, those are the places where Winston's trying to find his way forward. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then in Orwell's view, love's the last to go. Right. The last stronghold. Right. But it's also the one we're going to circle back around in the coda and say, well, isn't it sad that love went? Yeah. Like, that's the thing that we really lost and therefore the thing that was really valuable. And, and with it, humanity. Right. Well, and if you, if you can't have a transcendent divine being in your book, then sex is just always the go-to. I mean, even Never Let Me Go had a sense of that. Like, well, we have a little bit of time left, so what are we going to do existentially? How do we pass the time? Well, we do it in bed. Um, I think Never Let Me Go was more mature and more, and therefore more coy in its presentation of that. This isn't the be-all end-all of how Kathy and whatever his name are are going to redeem themselves. It's just... It's also 50 years downstream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (sighs) All right. Well, uh, I don't know, Brandon, how many um, burned, how many rats out of 1,984 do you give to 1984? Is having rats a good thing? Well, I should ask, is there anything else you want to criticize about this novel? Because you were sounding like at a certain point you were amping up to come (laughs) out with guns ablazing. Yeah, you know, I made peace with it. I don't really want to. Ministry of Peace? I don't think it's worth time. Jake's Jake's part of the Ministry of Peace. Everything that you would say would probably boil down to, eh, he just wasn't trying to I think people could guess what my criticisms would be, and I just don't think that that's what the discussion has led to, and I'm fine with that. Well, here, this will be fun. Jake, you want to guess what Brandon's criticisms would be? Uh, that is, it's a uh, hack piece of ideological propaganda masquerading as a novel and failing to be a novel, and he should have just written some essays. Yeah, that was kind of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he clearly couldn't write a novel. Yeah, that was kind of it. I don't know that I would. I mean, obviously, Jake said it in the in a silly way, but I, I don't know that I would actually go all the way there with you. I think there's a lot of things that are good about this novel as a novel. I think there's a lot about the story that actually works. I think there's long sections that are boring and stupid and don't work as storytelling. But I think the character of Winston basically rings true. I think the character of Julia and O'Brien. Yeah, I mean, Jake I mean, was, he was given the exaggerated yeah. version. But that's, I mean, not, that's not where I would land. We, we all but. agree. If you have something to say, write an essay. If you have a story to tell, write a novel. Right. Right. We all agree with that. We also all agree, done well, a novel is going to be more effective at moving the needle on an emotional level mm-hmm. yeah, if it's done well. Yeah. Than an essay. I think what you guys successfully did was convince me more that the story that it's telling is worth it. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Congratulations. Which I think is, I think is true. I think I would kind of bring the Jake point of view and the Brandon point of view together and just, I'm not going to take the time to do this in any detail, but I think if we wanted to, we could tease out the fact that cloudy morality leads to bad storytelling. And I think a lot of the moral problems that we were talking about with Julia and all that. That's definitely my issue with the stranger by Camus. Yeah. So if you solved those problems, you'd actually have a stronger story. If Winston was, had some moral sense that was better developed 
if only so that we could attack it and tear it down. I think it would actually make the attacking and tearing down more interesting. And it's not that he has to if be. If Orwell believed that the Lord turns the king, the hearts of kings, mm-hmm. it would add to the story, right? Like, yeah, it, it would it actually would, contribute. Even if you you're aiming for the same end, like this isn't a story where everything worked out. But if we sort of believe that it could have, it's one of the. It's like what I don't like about Greek, Greek tragedy. The characters are doomed from the beginning. They do a bunch of stuff, and then it turns out ah, they were doomed. What what I love about something like you know Shakespeare, uh, Romeo and Juliet, it's like if he just made it in time, everything would have been fine. There was hope, and it got dashed, and that's what actually made it tragic. Nineteen eighty four. There's no hope. Winston's always doomed, and so is Julia. They're idiots, and they're cogs in the machine, and the machine is bigger than them. And that's a false point of view, an immoral one, and it doesn't make the story better. It makes the story worse. It makes it less suspenseful and yes. less good as polemics. <sighs> so, I guess that's my, that's my take. But having said that, that's a minor criticism of a pretty great work. Anything, anything, anything else we want to say? No. All right. How many uh, pumpkin pies, uh-huh. pumpkin dies out of 1,984 do you give to this novel, Brandon? Uh, 1,800. Yep. Wow. That's a lot of pumpkin pies. Pumpkin I, think it, I think that's what it deserves. All right. Okay. Jake? 1,801. 1,801. I'll give it uh, 20. 20 pumpkin dies. Okay. I hate this book. <laughs> Come on, Nathan. No. What do you really give it? Oh, I don't know, Brandon. Uh, I don't just want to be a lame prices writer and give it 1,802, but you know what? I'll go a little lower than you I think guys. you just called me a, a lame prices writer. You're going to go lower than me? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think one person can be a lame prices writer. Uh, I don't know. You know what you should do? What? You should go with a number of the founding of the great capitalist society that has stood against this sort of mentality from the very beginning. 1776. 1776. 1776. Timely reference. Um, Okay. Great. 1776. 1776. Uh, um, What year did Columbus? 1400 and... Excuse me. Are you Aaron Burr, sir? Punch the burr, sir. I remember that much. Okay. Yeah, I'll give it 1776 since Brandon loves America and says I have to. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, Jake, you want to help us out with some... The right answer was 1,800. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> oh, I dang win. it. Here come I the win. thought police. <laughs> I was over by one. <laughs> hey, guys, I was guys, right on. The last couple of times we've done this, I've not really been able to be a part of the donor shout-outs. You think that I could do it today? Maybe do, even all by myself? Yeah, Jake, do you want to? Yeah, please. Can I? All right. Oh, no. Jake just fell into a sinkhole. Oh, those are surprisingly quick to open up beneath one. Yeah, and very si- surprisingly silent. <laughs> yeah, just fell. He's not even screaming. He's resigned to the reality of the sinkhole. No, him. Jake is a very zen dude. He is. I've often seen him fall into sinkholes, and he never screams. He never pouts. He never complains. He just sort of nods sagely as if to say, this is the sort of thing that happens to one. Yeah. The face on his hip that doesn't lie, though, it screams. Oh, it's, it's muffled by his it's pants. It's horrifying. He wears very tight pants to keep it muffled. Uh, it's like that painting. Uh, who, who painted the scream? Uh, oh, Edvard yeah. Munch or Munch or however you say his name. Yeah. Jake's fun fact. Uh, Munch actually based that painting on 
Jake's face on his hip that doesn't lie. Yeah, it looks exactly like that. It really does. It's awful. It's, it's got all that yellow kind of swirly Yeah, it's color. a little bit like Voldemort's face from the first Harry Potter movie that mm-hmm. looks nothing like Ralph Fiennes. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, <laughs> Rafe Fiennes. Oh, he Rafe. pronounces it Rafe. Rafe Fiennes. Rafe. <laughs> it's not Rafe. 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 <laughs> Maybe for one of our Halloween. Rafe. 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 No. <laughs> Rafe. Rafe. No. There's an F sound at the end, not That's a T. I'm saying F. Rafe. Rafe. So say Frankfurter. 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 Frankfurter, right? Frankfurter? Say Philadelphia. <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> I was hoping for Philadelphia, but Brandon, <laughs> Brandon was one step ahead of me. Well, speaking of being one step ahead of people, our donors are one step ahead of the pack in terms of supporting us in terms of awesomeness. They sure are. These are the only people in the world that we like. These are the only people in the world that we like. Because they give us money. Yeah, it really is too bad for our wives, our children. I mean, if they gave you money. Yeah, if they gave you money, but when's the last time your wife gave you money? money, Yeah. (laughs) And I get no respect, you (laughs) know? Uh, (laughs) Brendan's breaking out his his classic danger field. (laughs) Only the most current and timely of references from Brendan Chastain. He was tugging on his tie there, folks. That was that was what my really eyes bulged out of my head a bit. It was really the piece de resistance. You yeah. you couldn't see the visual stuff work that Brandon was doing to bring that to life. It's amazing. It was great. All right, I promised an even more auctioneer-like read of our patrons, so I'm going to try and go as fast as I possibly can. All right, I'm just taking a little sip. Can you of- add some auctioneer? Like, can I hear a Anthony and you know, like I have Robert and Rhonda the lover. That's Robert and Ronda. what do auctioneers say? Like. I actually don't know. Robert the Lovebirds, the Cigar Store, Immortal Chelsea. I feel like I'm 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 in my head too much here. I'm overthinking it now. I think you're doing fine. Keep going. Do it again though. One more time. <laughs> okay. We got it this time. <laughs> okay. Robert Ronald the Lovebirds, the Airfoline Dodger, Little Anthony Cigar Store, the Immortal Chelsea, Jimmy Beam, Little Angle, the Valley, Edward Lester Lovebirds, Thunder the Lester Lovebirds, Your Heart, the Lazard Soul, Keith Master, David Money Man, Turkey, John, Jill, Lenny Boy, Shane, Katie, your Cold Love, Cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, and Cody, I have a Fun fact I was articulating every word. That was amazing. And you're welcome. That was amazing. Patrons. I heard the warm and bees and all that stuff in there. In fact, let's slow it down. And people can hear hear it played slow so they can see all the words that are articulated, kind of like a, a video of a hummingbird yeah. where you can see the wings flap. Yeah, so we're going to slow it down now. This is people, this is like slowed down to 5,000 times the slower speed. Yep, <laughs> slowed down to 5,000 times the slower speed. That's how you say that sort of yeah. thing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, here we go. Robert Ronaldo the Lovebirds, the Airfoil Anthony Dodgers, Little Anthony Cigar Store, the Immortal Chelsea, Jimmy Beam, Little Anthony Oakley, the Valley, Andrew Ernesto the Lovebirds, the Keith Matter, David Mighty Man Trucking, John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jane and Katie who are cold enough cheese and also see us lose, we have faces, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happy as Mother Breath, Consul Prime Adam, Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death, Brandon Sucks, I'm just putting this in here, he won't be able to hear it because I'm talking so fast, Nathan, not me, Maya, Ryan the Red Avenger, and the Ladies of Justice, Danny the Dude, DJ Sammy G, now I feel bad about that Brandon thing, Brandon's really pretty awesome, I love Brandon, Benny, Danny, Tiberius, Eric and Catherine from Yana Winter Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, Lavender's Blue, Lavender's Green, Dylan, Dylan, I love you too, no one 
Fire Chief, the Fire and Fragrant Mary Chloe, eh, Brendan's okay. Anthony, who's cold and hates life, liberty, then pursuit of cheese. Jujitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, Rachel Weisrow, Midnight Ninja, Ellen Quinn can get a return of the Jedi, Jave Rack and yeah, I hate Brendan's guts. He's fat. Timothy, the writer at dawn. Eric and Kate, the camp champ. Kings who are warm and love bees. Man, 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 sweet. Jamie Sunshine, Tyler, the keeper of eternal darkness, and Laura, the keeper of eternal life. Cold Steel, Cody, and he smells not Cody, but Brendan, Jack, the librarian, Barbarian, John, Captain Janelle, his mate, saxophone, Alex, Eli, the Scarlet Pill, the other saxophone, Alex, and Dubstep, Danny, Ryan, the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Catherine, Cream and Crimson, who are stuck in the cold. Please send cheese. I wish Brandon was stuck in the cold, and I would not send him cheese. That was amazing. So many, like, little things that you didn't hear. Yeah. Stuck in grace notes, I call them. Grace notes, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Great. Thanks. I heard some things in there that I didn't hear the first time. Mm-hmm. We'll discuss them after you turn the mic off. Okay. Yeah. Didn't think that one through, folks. Probably shouldn't have slowed it down that much. Um, don't mind this bottle of chloroform in this rag. Don't mind it, Nathan. Just you just stay seated. 